0: This is the 10,000 Depositions Later podcast, episode 48. I'm Jim Garrity. Today, we're just passing along a brand new deposition-related case for your research files. It'll be useful in a situation where you're trying to schedule the deposition of an opponent's employee that the opponent says wasn't involved and doesn't want you to depose. Maybe you've got a suspicion that the employee was a behind-the-scenes decision-maker or was simply in a position to know what was going on. But all you've been able to come up with so far are your suspicions, maybe some generic indicators that the potential witness may have been involved, maybe some inferences from what you actually do know, but nothing concrete. And your adversary is refusing to allow the deposition, saying you're just wrong, that others were the decision makers, and the employee you're trying to depose doesn't know anything at all, wasn't involved, and can't afford to have you waste their time. To top it off, the adversary files an affidavit from the employee that says just that, I wasn't involved. So you still have this nagging suspicion, but your evidence about the witness's involvement is thin, and you've got some very strong opposition from the other side. Do you give up on your efforts to depose that witness? Of course not. Now this new federal appellate decision will need to be in your memo, seeking an order compelling the deposition of the person your adversary doesn't want you to depose, and the full case citation is in the show notes. In a situation like what I just outlined three days ago on June 21, 2021, the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals vacated a trial judge's grant of summary judgment, reversed the trial judge's denial of the plaintiff's motion to compel the deposition of an HR manager, and remanded the case with instructions that the trial judge allow the plaintiff to depose the witness. So you've got a high-level federal appeals court saying that even when your evidence seems thin as to the potential involvement of a witness, you should be allowed to depose the witness and inquire about their role. Even if the witness has filed a sworn affidavit saying they weren't involved, you still get the deposition. All right, a quick rundown of the facts in the case just to give you some additional flavor. In this particular case, the Ackridge case, the plaintiff worked for an insurance company She gets fired. She then sues for disability discrimination in violation of the ADA. She asserts that although the insurance company said she was fired because of the automation of some of her job duties, she contends she was fired because of the high cost to her employer in treating her multiple sclerosis. So she says the termination was related to her disability and that it was therefore unlawful. And as part of the evidence in the case, the plaintiff apparently submitted an affidavit saying that Her medications cost around $10,000 a month. By way of background, she worked for this particular insurance company for about 30 years, mostly in the underwriting department. In 1993, she gets diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. And there's evidence that MS, of course, altered many aspects of her life in critical ways. But she was apparently able to show during the discovery process that she could not only perform the essential functions of her job at a basic level, but that she did so in an excellent way. Apparently, at one point, she was chosen out of almost 1,000 employees as the employee of the year, and she continued to get positive evaluations until she was terminated in December 2016. Now, during the course of discovery, and because she's in federal court, she's limited to 10 depositions by default, but one of the 10 she wanted to depose was a senior HR manager, the executive vice president of human resources and the appellate decision indicates that she apparently tried several times to get the company to cooperate in taking his deposition could not get that cooperation and then filed two motions to compel which the company opposed Uh, the magistrate judge denied both motions later in the discovery process the plaintiff takes another run at again moving to compel the HR managers deposition once again saying that his testimony is relevant and necessary once again The employer opposed the motion saying that the HR manager didn't have any relative knowledge about her termination. And this time, the HR manager himself submits an affidavit saying he didn't consult with the three individuals that did have relevant and necessary information about her termination. So now we have the HR manager himself coming out swinging saying, I wasn't involved. I know who was, but I didn't talk to them before she was fired. Apart from the HR manager's affidavit, the company also apparently responded to interrogatories saying there were three supervisors and only three supervisors who participated in any way, directly or indirectly, in the decision to eliminate the plaintiff's job. On top of all of this, during depositions that the plaintiff was able to take, there was additional testimony from a corporate rep who said no one at the company knew of anyone's medical costs and that the company didn't even maintain records on those costs. But here's where it gets a little fuzzy. Apparently, the company acknowledged that two of the supervisors involved in the decision to eliminate her position did consider job-related costs. So job-related costs, that's the first potential telltale sign that her medication expenses might have played a role and that maybe the HR manager might know something and apparently the company in interrogatory answers said that the elimination of the plaintiff's position resulted from the reorganization and due to the automation of her responsibilities and further as part of the company's efforts to reduce costs so another modest telltale sign that the cost of employing a particular employee might have played a role in who was chosen for elimination Plaintiff, still not giving up on getting the deposition of the HR manager, said again that his testimony was reasonably calculated to lead to critical and admissible evidence because as an executive vice president of human resources, he had broad access to her personal information as well as to information about the decision to eliminate her position. Federal magistrate again says no. Any information that the vice president of HR has is, quote, Minimally relevant, and even if relevant, compelling his deposition at this time would be disproportional to the needs of the case, end quote. The judge also apparently reasoned that the vice president had not been identified as someone involved in the termination decision. Now, the 11th Circuit in its decision notes that for the next six months, the plaintiff made nine more tries to compel the vice president's deposition, all of which were denied. The magistrate judge again determined that she had not made a showing a sufficient showing that the vice president had any material knowledge of the circumstances surrounding her termination long story short the case gets thrown out on summary judgment with the judge concluding that she did show that the decision makers knew that getting rid of her would eliminate her salary and benefits of course but that they didn't know of her specific medical costs so the magistrate judge in granting some a judgment, basically says she wasn't able to show that the company considered her disability or her medical expenses in deciding to eliminate her position. Well, the appeals court didn't think a whole lot of the decision to deny this guy's deposition, and we know that because the 14-page decision starts with the following sentence, which is clear enough that you don't need to flip to the last page to figure out the outcome. So the opinion begins thus. This appeal considers the impermissible curtailment of a civil plaintiff's access to full discovery. All right, so the 11th Circuit says in its opinion that while district court judges, trial judges, have broad discretion in fashioning discovery rulings, that the discretion is not absolute. So if the district court fails to adhere to the liberal spirit of the discovery rules, it's got to be overturned. Uh, The court goes on to quote some boilerplate legal principles about the rules and the fact that they strongly favor discovery and that civil litigants are generally entitled to all information they seek if it appears reasonably calculated to lead to the discovery of admissible evidence, you're certainly familiar with that phrase, and if it's proportional to the needs of the case. The appeals court goes on to say that it wasn't at all convinced by the insurance company's arguments that its HR manager would be unduly burdened by a deposition and that this was simply a fishing expedition effort by the plaintiff. And the court makes an interesting point. While the defendant said it didn't know anyone's medical costs, the court points out that during the discovery process, one of the decision makers said that it's a savings when you eliminate a job that has a salary like hers, and that when you eliminate a job, you not only eliminate the salary, but all of the benefits that go with it. So the court is saying it stands to reason by inference that if a company fires an employee to cut costs Someone at the company must have access to information on just how costly an employee is, including pay and benefits, necessarily including employer provided health care. The 11th Circuit goes on to point out that the vice president in question had been identified in some papers as the quote unquote decision maker for the company's ERISA employment benefit plan and as the quote unquote decision contact for the company's insurance plan. So the court says we find it difficult to believe that he had no information touching on the plaintiff's medical expenses and termination. Court says the roles that he held at the company and the corresponding access to medical insurance information that those roles entailed are relevant and thus sufficient to make his testimony discoverable. Then the court says, look, if he truly has no information, we see no reason why he can't make himself available for questioning and say as much in a deposition. All right, finally, uh, as for the Vice President's sworn affidavit submitted in opposition to the motion to compel his testimony, the Federal Appeals Court said the following, quote, nor are we convinced that his affidavit is sufficient here. Courts have noted that the deposition of a witness will usually be more reliable than his affidavit since the deponent was either cross-examined by opposing counsel or at least available to opposing counsel for cross-examination. Affidavits, on the other hand, the court continued, are usually drafted by counsel, whose familiarity with summary judgment procedure render an affidavit less credible. Boy, that's the understatement of the decade, isn't it? Uh, Court basically ends the decision by saying, in response to the claim that this was just a fishing expedition, court says no longer can the time-honored cry of fishing expedition serve to preclude a party from inquiring into the facts underlying his opponent's case. Mutual knowledge of all the relevant facts gathered by the parties is essential to proper litigation. So bottom line, the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals set aside the summary judgment ruling and sent the case back so the plaintiff can depose the HR manager. Now, obviously, that might not save the day for the plaintiff. We already know what the HR manager is likely to say given his prior sworn affidavit but you never know, signing an affidavit prepared by a lawyer is one thing. Submitting to sharp and effective deposition cross-examination by an adversary, quite another. All right, so lessons to be learned from this case. Number one, unsworn representations by opposing lawyers that a witness doesn't know anything aren't dispositive and shouldn't be treated that way. Number two, statements by opposing witnesses, even sworn statements that they don't know anything are not dispositive And again, shouldn't be treated that way as a substitute for deposition. Number three, look for and highlight telltale signs that the witness in question was in a position where they would have had to be consulted about a decision or an event that you're litigating. Were they the final authority? Were they in the chain of command where they would have had to sign off at some administrative level? Do the organization's policies say that they would have had to have been consulted or would have had to sign off administratively? Did they attend meetings where the decision was discussed? Did they or do they have access to data, reports, memos, recommendations that key decisions were based on or that discuss key decisions? Did they provide information that other decision makers relied on in making a decision? have other deponents given testimony that tend to point toward a role by the person that you want to depose or someone that holds their position. You know, from time to time, I run into situations where an opposing party objects to the deposition of someone that I suspect has key information. So I look for these telltale indicators, and if they're present, I absolutely insist on taking their deposition. I never rely on unsworn representations of counsel about what a witness knows or even sworn affidavits of the person in question. And I never hesitate to involve a court to get the discovery I need. And this opinion will be supremely useful for you in situations just like this. It underscores a powerful point, which is that where there's a basis, some basis to depose a witness, you ought to be allowed to do it. And the adversary's representations alone, whether the unsworn representations of counsel, or even a nicely crafted affidavit from the proposed opponent about who knows what or who doesn't know what, shouldn't be enough to stop you. All right, that's it for today's episode. As always, thank you so much for listening, and thank you again for the very positive reviews. I can't tell you how much we appreciate that. Have a great day.